You are listening to Episode 2 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 3. St. Cloud Orbital, 2352, February 19. According to our duty roster, Pip had the watch and I was free to leave the ship. Personally, I was torn between going out and trying to find some trade goods and staying around to see what developed. I left Pip and Cookie with their heads together over stores trading and headed down to deck berthing to pack what little I had and move. It would only take a few ticks and then I'd be free to go to the flea market to see how the co-op was doing. I felt kind of funny going in to strip my bunk and clean out my locker. I was just moving across the passageway, but it still seemed like I was leaving home in a way. It took only a couple of ticks to clear off my linens, pack up my duffel bag, and reset the palm lock on my locker. I checked around one last time to make sure I hadn't left anything tucked down beside the mattress or under the pillow, and that was it. I was done. One good thing about living out of a locker, when you've cleaned it out, you're done packing. That thought inevitably dredged up the memories of my mother's death, packing up all the stuff in our flat, shipping it off to storage on Siren. I remembered being all sentimental over leaving that flat and wondered if I'd always have the same sense of loss whenever I moved. It's just a locker, I told myself. But it wasn't. It was Big Bad Bev in the lower bunk and Tabitha Rondita's gentle snoring on the other side of the partition. It was having Pip across the way. I knew I wasn't really leaving them. We were all still on the same ship. Still, it caught at me in an odd way. I gave myself a firm shake then and headed over to engineering birthing. It was such a long way. I stepped out of deck birthing, walked the eight steps to engineering, and then into the mirror image of the room I'd just left. Midday is always quiet in birthing, and made doubly so because we were docked. There wasn't anybody there but me. Still, I felt like I was intruding. I walked slowly down the aisle, looking into the quads to find an empty berth. There were a lot of them. Of the five quads, none were full. The bunk that corresponded to my old one on deck berthing was free, so I took that. It seemed as good as any. I tossed the bundle of linens onto the bunk, set the palm lock on the corresponding locker, and stashed my gear in it, hanging my civvies on the hangers and putting my boy toy belt on the book. It didn't take all that long to make up my bunk, and within a half a stand, moving day was done. I felt kind of odd. I was halfway between. As I was standing there trying to decide what to do, Brill came charging into the birthing area. Oh, there you are, she exclaimed. I thought I might find you here. She was in civvies, a tailored caramel-colored jacket over an emerald blouse and beige straight-legged slacks. Are you all moved in? Just trying to decide what to do, I said. There's still a couple of stands left before the flea market closes, but I don't want to go alone. I'm not sure if I should leave Pip here in case the new greenie comes in. Brill smiled at me. The greenie won't be here before evening watch is a minimum. The captain will probably have to go down to the hiring hall in the morning, I suspect, so you've got nothing to worry about there. You're off duty now, right? I grinned. Unless you've come to give me some other news, I'm still mess deck attendant, and Pip has the watch. Excellent, she said. Let's go shopping. I want some of that Ishmael luck with private cargo. When I owe you dinner, I reminded her, I should probably settle that debt before you become my boss. She chuckled. Deal. After the luck you've been having with trades, you can afford it. Be at the lock in five ticks, or I'm going to leave without you. She waved airily and sashayed out. I felt a lot better then and burrowed into my civvies. My old bunkie, Beverly Aerith, turned me on to flea market shopping. Her black leathers, military crew cotton tattoos usually earned her a bubble of space in the throngs of people clogging the aisles. Walking in public with Big Bad Bev was always entertaining because of the reactions of the people who saw her. Shopping with Brill was an experience of a different nature. 
Where Bev attracted attention for her hard look, Brill got attention for her height. In a universe of people who seldom topped two meters, Brill's two and a quarter left her towering over almost everybody. She walked with a slight stoop and had to be careful around the ship not to bang her head into hatch combings. She was perfectly proportioned with long legs and neck, a narrow waist and a somewhat muscular physique. Until you stood next to her, you didn't really realize how tall she was. She had a broad face that nobody would call beautiful but was far from plain. She had wide-set brown eyes and high cheekbones, a very cute nose. She wore a ready smile and had a razor wit. She was what my mother would have called a sweetie. Unfortunately, I don't think the people on the orbital saw her quite that way. If Bev got stares of fear and awe, Brill got incredulity and amusement. As we headed into the flea market, the people around us would suddenly get very quiet and stare, only to buzz in our wake like flies. I kept catching bits of conversation with words like Amazon and freak in them. The general derisive tone was making me angry. Just before we entered the big sales hall that held the flea market, Brill leaned down to me and said softly, Thank you, Ishmael, but getting angry will only make your day worse and won't change their attitudes. She smiled beatifically at me, and I noticed how the emerald in her blouse set off her brown eyes. But it's so unfair, I protested. You're amazing in there. Hush, she said softly again. I've been tall since I was ten stand years old. I've made my peace with it, can't you? She smiled again, and I felt my anger melt away. I smiled back. You're going to be a bitch to work for, aren't you? I said at last. She grinned at that and nodded, but you don't work for me yet, so let's just go shopping. I need you to find me some decent trade goods for Dunsany. After that, the stares and the giggling didn't seem to matter. Brill and I knew what we knew, and the rest was just noise. Our first stop was the co-op's booth. Spec 3 environmental Francis Gartner was booth manager that day, and while not as tall as Brill, he was still taller than average. I spotted him over the crowds in the aisles before we reached the actual booth. His string bean build made him look taller from a distance, and it wasn't until you saw him standing next to Brill that you appreciated how skinny he was. The booth looked good, with the McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative banner clipped to the backing drape and the two tables with matching navy blue claws. Our graph pallet was acting as a raised dais in the back of the booth, where Francis could see what was happening and left most of the floor free for traffic. Francis even had a big round button pinned to his blue shirt that said, Booth Boss. As we approached, Sandy Belterson was just closing a sale on some small item I couldn't make out, and she sent the customer back to Francis to settle up. Compared to our first rough outing back in Marguerite, we looked like real pros. Francis grinned broadly when Brill and I walked up. Hey, am I glad to see you? What in the galaxy is going on back at the ship? Brill looked at me with as innocent an expression as I've ever seen. Is there something going on at the ship? She asked me. Well, I don't know. Is there? I asked in return, but I know I was grinning. Francis, for his part, just kept looking from one to the other of us like he was trying to decide which one to hit first. Don't make me hurt you, he said with a grin. Gregor was packing up as I was getting ready to leave to come up here, so what's going on? Brill relented. Gregor's gone. The Audrey needed him aboard at noon and the captain signed the transfer. Francis grinned like he'd won the lottery. Outstanding, he said, and then looked around to see if anybody noticed he was celebrating. I mean, that's good for him. I, I know he wanted to be on a tanker. More like he wanted a bunk bunny, you mean, Brill said softly. Francis flashed his eyebrows up and down but didn't say anything. I made a mental note to find out what a bunk bunny was, although I had my suspicions. What else have you heard? Brill asked him. He grinned and looked at me before answering her. Well, I heard a rumor that we're getting some greeny engine men as a replacement. Brill nodded. It's true. We had to take what we could find on short notice, she said with a wink in my direction. 
He has some potential, though, don't you think? Francis held out a hand, and I shook it, but he drew me into a hug. Outstanding, he said, pounding me on the back. Yeah, Brill said, you should have heard Diane going on about the greenie we were going to get saddled with before she knew it was him. I about peed myself laughing. Francis looked instantly concerned. Is she upset? I shook my head. No, I set her up as a joke. She came onto the mess deck all agog about Gregor's leaving. I told her I heard a rumor that he was being replaced by some half-share greenie. Francis started to laugh. And she bought it? Oh, yeah, I said. She took me aside afterwards to make sure I knew she was happy that I'd be joining the section. She seemed very sincere. Brill giggled. Yeah, she only calls people she really likes sludge monkey, so you're on her short list of good people. Francis pulled a long face. Damn, it took a year for her to call me sludge monkey. And then he burst out laughing. Brill got sidetracked by Rebecca Saltzman then, and I took the opportunity to ask Francis quietly, Are you sure this is okay with you, Francis? I know I don't have the background that Gregor had. Oh, are you kidding, he said. Look, anybody who'd give up his break time to scrape sludge is good in my book. I don't care what your rating is. Most of what we do is work just like that. You've got plenty of time to get the theoretical stuff down. You probably already know more than Gregor, he added darkly. Diane and I have been talking about the possibility of getting you transferred into Foggy Bottoms ever since you passed the engineman exam. Anything we can do to help you, you let us know. Either of us. I mean it. A customer came over to ask about the brocaded vest on the table, and Francis winked at me as he went to answer her questions. Brill wrapped up her conversation with Rebecca, and we slipped out of the co-op booth. They were all smiling and selling like crazy, so it looked like a good day for the McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative. We turned the corner, and Brill said, You know, I'll help you too, Ish. Francis and Diane aren't the only ones who are glad to see Gregor Avery out of the section. I looked at her in surprise. I'm tall, Ish, she said with a mischievous grin. Not deaf. I laughed. You are going to be a bitch to work for. I just know it, I said in mock dismay. She laughed at that. I've been called much, much worse. Just then a display of small wood carvings caught my eye and I steered Brill over to the booth. A balding man with a long, sharp nose, wearing what looked like homespun, was sitting on a tall stool behind the table, watching people walking by but making no attempt to call attention to the collection of small wooden figures on the table in front of him. Brill and I walked up to the table and leaned over to look at them closely. They were made of a kind of pale gray wood, gnarled and weathered and carved to bring out the natural grain. They were exquisitely done with a velvety-looking oil finish. It seemed like there were dozens of them, fish, animals, birds, each with an inlaid bit of shell like a heart on their chests. I looked up at the man and asked, what are these? He smiled. Why, they're wooden sculptures, my boy. What do they look like? He said kindly. I looked at Brill and saw her eyes were flicking from one to the next to the next, taking in the details and textures, certainly, but almost like she was looking for one in particular. Well, yes, I agreed. I can see their wooden sculptures, and they are absolutely exquisite, but what are they? What is this wood? He smiled again. His weathered skin and wrinkles at the corners of his eyes made him seem carved from wood himself. The wood is windrift. Tis a gift from the sea, and we gather it on the beaches. The larger bits we burn for fuel. Some we carve. And the hearts, I asked. Ah, he said, the hearts are bits of shell. The sea provides those, too. These are not just souvenirs, I said. They have some meaning. Can you tell us? He raised his eyebrows in amusement at this. You see what you see, young sir. I am but a simple carver of shapes. As stall patter, it was spectacularly effective, but I couldn't get it out of my head that these were more than simple carvings. Perhaps I was projecting my own feelings onto them, but they seemed like so much more. To begin with, the carving was exquisite, and the inlay work was flawless. 
The shapes emerged from the wood like they'd always been there, and the carver merely discovered them. Good, sir, I mean no offense. I answered him as formally, playing along with his patter, but I'm a simple lad and not familiar with your customs. Are these religious icons, good luck charms? They seem like more than merely shapes. I glanced at Brill again, but she seemed oblivious to our conversation, intently examining each of the figures. The man said then, These are but the shapes in the windrift and the shells of the sea. My family's been making them for decades, my father and his father before him. In the windy season when we can't fish, we collect the windrift and the shells and carve them when the mood strikes us. In truth, they bear no significance other than the love we have for the sea. Brill reached out and plucked a figure from the table. It was a heron, about six centimeters tall with delicately formed neck and long legs. The heart was a bit of rich purple shell. Brill asked, how much? All the pieces on the table are ten creds, he said. That's the price. She placed the heron back on the table and stood. It's lovely, but no, thank you, she said. We took our leave then, and as I was leaving, I noted the booth number. A few meters down the aisle, we looked at each other. What was that all about, Brill asked. I shook my head. I'm not sure, but we need to remember that booth. Ten creds is a lot for a small wooden artifact, but they may well be worth every bit of it. The craftsmanship on them is spectacular, and each one seems to have captured the essence of its subject. That heron looked like it might reach out and strike a fish. It was lovely, she agreed. Why didn't you get it, I asked. She shrugged. I don't know. I can't explain it, but as soon as you said the price, I didn't really want it. She shook her head slightly, as if just waking up. I mean, I wanted it, but I didn't want to buy it. She shook her head again. I don't know what I mean. Why didn't you buy some? Well, I shook my head then. I don't know either. I need to think about it. Brill shrugged, and we continued down the aisle. Around the next corner, we found a booth selling powdered dyes, and I remembered a conversation Pip and I had had in Marguerite. I nudged Brill with an elbow. You were looking for trade goods? She looked at me, said yes. Back in Marguerite, Pip and I were thinking we should buy dyes as private cargo and bring them to St. Cloud. We thought there might be a market for dye with the yarn producers here. Instead, we discovered that St. Cloud dyes were kind of cottage-level export. Makes sense, Brill said. If you have the yarn, you'll find ways to dye it. We drifted into the dye booth and looked over the packets. The couple behind the counter, a woman and her husband, were pleasant and businesslike. The dye was packaged in paper packets from a few grams up to a quarter kilo. Each packet had a small sample of yarn affixed to it, showing the color the particular dye produced. Brill asked, Do you have these in larger packages? The man laughed, but the woman shook her head with a grin. The quarter-kilo packets will dye ten kilos of wool to full saturation, she explained. That's a lot of wool. For most normal uses, the hundred-gram packets are preferred. The packets were spread on the table in a color wheel pattern, with the purples on one end and arching around a red on the other. There were no white dyes, of course, but blacks took up space in the center of the curve. I took out my tablet and snapped a digital of the display and sent it off to Pip. We're a crew from the Lois McKendrick, I explained, and we're looking for things to take with us out of the system. This looks very interesting, but I'd like my partner to come see. Please take a card, the man said, and offered a small data card. We're happy to offer wholesale prices. I took the card and thanked them, and Brill and I moved on. What do you think, she asked, as we moved down the aisle. I shrugged. I'm not sure. The dyes are a good idea in theory, but I'm thinking of what they'd look like on the co-op table. As a trade good, they lack something. It does seem like a kind of specialty item, she said. Either you want it or you don't. It was just about then we came to the yarn aisle. I smiled at Brill, and we proceeded to work through the booths. 
About halfway down the aisle, we found Sean Grishin, a spacer apprentice from the deck division, carrying several skeins of soft yarn in various colors. Sean was a short guy with a pug nose and sandy hair. He spent his downtime on the ship doing needlework, of all things. I knew he'd earned a pile of creds back in Marguerite by selling his handmade lace. Judging from the skeins of yarn he was carrying, I suspected he had some new projects in mind. He waved when he saw us, and he had a kind of kid-in-a-candy-store grin plastered on his face. Hey, shippies, he called. Hi, Sean, Brill answered. You look like you're going to be doing some knitting. How much yarn do you have there? He grinned at us. About five kilos worth, but I'm not knitting with this. What then, I asked. Five kilos is a lot of mass. Yeah, he agreed, but I unloaded almost everything I had between Marguerite and here. I'm going to make this into afghans. Brill laughed delightedly. Afghans? Yeah, I've got all these patterns for crocheted afghans. I've had them for a stanier. This is the first time I've had sufficient cred and mass allotment to actually get yarn enough to make some. I glanced at Brill before asking him, So, this is good yarn? It ranges from good to excellent, he said. Depends on what you want to do with it, really. You guys looking for trade goods, he asked. We nodded, and he pointed back down the aisle in the direction we were headed. Second booth from the end, on the left-hand side. Middle-aged couple got big bundles of general-purpose wool yarn. The best deals are the 200-gram worsted wool skeins. The texture's excellent. She dyes it herself with local dyes. You can probably pick it up for about two creds apiece, he said. Thanks, Sean, I told him. He smiled. Hey, no problem. Thank you for getting the co-op going. I wouldn't be able to afford this, he said with a grin and indicating his big bundle of yarn, if it hadn't been for you and Pip. I did my best, ah, shucks, twarn't nothing impression. Sean waved and said, well, I gotta get this stuff stowed. We'll see you back on the ship. Thanks for the tips, Sean, I told him. On the way to the booth that Sean indicated... Brill asked me, so how are you going to handle this? Well, I'll probably just grab a digital and flash it over to Pip. Sean knows his yarn, and if he says this is good, it's good. Pip and I will put our heads together between now and tomorrow to decide if we want to buy it, and if so, how much. We don't have any other good prospects, and we recently got increased mass allotments, so we'll probably pick up at least a few kilos, I told her. The couple were indeed amenable to bulk purchases, and I made arrangements for Pip to visit the next day. I bought a few skeins to take back to show him, and the man put them in a carry sack for me. For her part, Brill fell in love with some extremely soft yarns and warm, earthy colors. I excused myself while she dickered. I'll be right back, I told her. I left the booth and headed in the direction of the head, but at the end of the aisle I doubled back. It was a matter of a tick for me to find the booth with the carvings again, and the man smiled when he saw me coming back. You thought it over, young Sar, he said. Yes, I said. I don't know what these are, but they're exquisite. I'd like to buy some to take with me to Dunsany as trade goods, I confessed. Would that be acceptable? Well, the price is still ten creds, he said with a smile. They are what they are, and you may do with them as you see fit. I quickly selected ten of them. I let my hand choose and didn't worry about picking any particular piece as I placed my selections on a corner of the table. They were all exquisite. The man, meanwhile, nodded with each piece I selected and seemed pleased with my choices, when I indicated that I was done, he wrapped each in a small piece of soft cloth, tied it in a red piece of string, and put it gently into a carry sack for me. I started to transfer the credits, but he just looked at me with a small smile and a raised eyebrow. Are you certain you're done, young Sar? he asked. I started to nod, but one figure caught my eye, and I smiled. I gave a small bow to the man. Thanks to you for reminding me, good Sar, I told him. I seem to have missed the most important piece. I picked up the hair and handed it to him to wrap. As I left the booth, I stashed a small bundle of figures in a carry sack of yarn. Brill was waiting for me, her purchases complete. I was just about to send out the search dogs, she said with a grin. I got sidetracked, I told her. There's a lot going on here. 
Is there anything in particular you're looking for, she asked me as we started off again. You mean like for me or as trade goods, I asked in reply. Either. Well, I'm always looking for trade goods, but those I stumble on. I know them when I see them. Yeah, she said, it's the excitement of the hunt as much as anything. I chuckled. Well, I'd like to upgrade my wardrobe. These were my going out clothes back on Neris, I told her, indicating my civvies. They seem a little... tired. It's hard to find clothes that fit at the flea market, Brill said wistfully. Not just for me, I'm impossible to fit. But people come in a lot of sizes and shapes, and flea markets just don't have that kind of flexibility. That's basically luck. True. Makes perfect sense now that you said it. I sighed. Well, maybe in Dunsany I can find a tailor and a bootmaker. Maybe you won't have to wait that long, Brill said, grinning. She could see over the heads in front of us, and when the crowd cleared a bit, I saw what she was looking at. A large banner hung on the drape behind the booth, proclaimed Brechot et Fille. An impeccably dressed portly gentleman with bald pate surrounded by tufts of brown hair held court. He overwhelmed the space with his presence and directed a short platoon of boys and girls in their tasks. Some were measuring, some were cutting, all were moving in a common purpose. There was even a sewing table set up at the back of the booth with several machines, all humming merrily under their dexterous fingers and sharp eyes. The booth, I realized it was actually a triple, was boiling over with activity. I laughed out loud at the sight, and Brill clapped her hands girlishly in delight. The chrono said we had less than a stand before closing, so this would be our last stop, and it was going to be memorable. I flashed a digital of it for Pip to see before I started looking through the racks. Brill touched my arm and said, My turn to find the head. You look. I'll be right back. I nodded up at her. I'll be here, I said, distracted by the commotion. I turned back to the booth and tried to figure out where to begin. A voice in my ear said, How can we help you today, young Tsar? I turned to find the man himself smiling at me. He held out a hand. Brechot, he introduced himself, at your service. I shook his hand and said, Call me, uh, that is, my name is Ishmael Huang, Monsieur Brechot, and I'm in need of a better jacket. He smiled. Just Brechot, Mr. Huang. May I call you Ishmael? Of course, I nodded. What kind of jacket would you like then, Ishmael? I pulled at the lapel of my glorified windbreaker. I've outgrown this, I said. While the size is adequate, I find it no longer fits me. Brechot smiled. I understand exactly. If you would slip off your garment and try. He snapped his fingers and a girl hung an exquisite black sport coat on his hand. This one. I stripped out of my jacket and Brechot slipped the coat on for me. A boy immediately began tugging and straightening. A girl, she could have been no more than eight staniers, plunked down at Brechot's feet and started writing the measurements as fast as a different boy could read them out. Neck, sleeve, length, chest, waist. Brechot himself tisked before shaking his head. No, it will not do, and before I could even see whether I liked it or not, it was gone. He snapped his fingers again, and a different girl, I think, hung a brownish waist-length jacket on his outstretched hand, he slipped it onto my shoulders while the little girl with my measurements scrambled out from under his feet, and the boy with the measuring tool stepped back, his eyes alert for the next command. Brechot hmmed once and said, possibly. This coat stayed on long enough for me to realize that it fit as if it had been cut for me, before Brechot said over his shoulder, Mark, the hip lake frock, s'il vous plaît, and stripped the jacket off my shoulders in a single fluid movement. A boy hustled from behind a rack, took the offered jacket from Brochot, and replaced it with another, this one in a dark olive green. Before I could get a good look at it, Brochot had it slipped into place, and a boy had buttoned the bottom three brass buttons. Brochot tugged the shoulders gently and pulled down on the back before walking slowly around me in full inspection. 
I didn't even dare look down to see what the thing really was, but it molded to me and had that uncanny feeling of rightness. How does that feel, Ishmael? Brachot finally asked me. Incredible, I told him. How does it look? Brachot snapped his fingers again, and two girls wheeled in a large mirror. I looked in the mirror, but didn't see me right away. Thinking they had it turned slightly, I shifted to get a better angle and saw the figure in the mirror do the same thing. The coat was a rich, dark olive green with a single row of small brass buttons offset down the right side. The collar and sleeves were trimmed in a rich chocolatey leather. It was cut like a military academy tunic with a stand-up collar, and it fell to just below my hip, much longer than the waist-length jackets I was used to. "'What do you think, Ishmael?' Brichot said to me in the mirror. He was smiling over my shoulder. "'It's beautiful,' I sighed. "'But is it me?' Brichot gave a little shrug. "'It could be, but I'm not sure the fit is perfect yet. Please, reach straight ahead.' I did as he instructed, and I could feel the material bind across my back. Brichot tisked. "'As I feared,' he said. "'You are a runner?' he asked. Confused at this, I answered without thinking, "'Yes, how did you know?' Your chest is larger, and that's what causes this binding here. I could feel his fingers trace across under my shoulder blades. He sighed. This is just one half size too small for you. It needs a bit of fitting to be perfect. He glanced at the chrono and tisked again. I could have it ready for you by tomorrow, he suggested. I was still gazing at the me in the mirror. The coat seemed like it was the right coat, but so much more dramatic than anything I'd ever worn. The flashy buttons and leather trim seemed oddly theatrical. I blinked then and noticed Brill standing behind the mirror, looking over it at me. What do you think, Brill? I asked. Is it me? She smiled. It's spectacular, certainly. Is it you? She shrugged. You're the only one who can say. Then what Brachot had said sunk in. Tomorrow? No, I have duty tomorrow, and we leave for Dunsany Roads the day after, I told him. Pity, he said. The coat looks spectacular on you, Ishmael, but it needs just that bit of tailoring to make it perfect. Could I tailor it and have it sent to the ship, perhaps? He asked. I don't know, I told him. Looking once more in the mirror, this is a wonderful piece, but I wonder if it's perhaps too, I don't know, dramatic? <sighs> I sighed. I don't know that I have the style to pull this off. Brichot smiled at me in the mirror. He caught my eyes in the glass and leaned into my ear. Ishmael, there is an old saying that the clothes make the man. Is that the man you wish to be? I broke his gaze and looked at myself once more before looking back into his eyes. I don't know, Brichot. I need to think about it, and we don't have time for that much thinking. Brichot smiled warmly. You're a wise man, Ishmael, he said, and slipped the coat from my shoulders. A girl took it and it disappeared. Brichot slipped my own jacket onto me and gave it his little tugs. May I suggest you think upon this during your voyage to Dunsany, Ishmael, Brichot said. He slipped a business chip out of a sleeve and inscribed a single letter B with a flourish on the case. When you get to Dunsany, he told me, present this chip at the establishment of Henri Roubaillet. If you know who you are... Henri will be able to fit you. Merci, Brouchot, I told him. My apologies for taking your time. He shook his head, but why else am I here? Please, come see me the next time your travels bring you to St. Claude. He offered his hand and a warm smile. I took the hand and gave him a smile in return. 
I'll be sure to visit you sooner next time, I told him. Just then the warning ping sounded, letting the shoppers know that the flea market was closing. I looked around and saw Brill still standing by the mirror, and we joined the stream of people leaving. Why didn't you get it, she asked. It was exceptional, and you looked good enough to eat in it, she said in a visceral tone that took me off guard. I chuckled. I don't know, I just didn't feel right. I didn't know that I wanted to attract that much attention. I can appreciate that, she said with a wan smile. Thanks for listening to episode two of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from the banks of Newfoundland, an Irish jig recorded in September of 1928 by Peter James Conlon and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com slash golden. Mm-hmm.